I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is God's word. Um, so as many of you know, for the, for the year, we're going through a series that we're calling Set Apart, and it's a, essentially an exploration of the unique uh, mission that our church feels that we ought to be on and how that sets us apart from other uh, churches that that we love and work together uh, with. It also is kind of a working out of what makes us distinct from some of the things people might assume that all churches believe. Uh, As we've gone through the past year, we've we've looked at that and we've said, you know, um, the way the media works and the way that kind of, yeah, just, just the way our culture views the church, there are assumptions that, that all churches are on the same page, and they're not. So some of that we want to work out throughout the next year and where we're at. Uh, but also, we, we most of all want to be set apart as a church and as people because of the gospel, uh, because we believe it, um, anchor ourselves in it, and live out of it. So that's kind of the series we're in, and we're going to dig especially into this idea of what it means to be called by his grace today. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, I want to praise you and thank you for the chance to approach your word uh, for, for my own sake. I've just, I've enjoyed reading and contemplating this scripture and the ones that were used in studying it. I pray that this would be helpful to the people of this church. I pray that we would see your grace more and more in the scriptures. I pray that we would experience it more and more in our lives. I pray that we would offer it more and more to others and that we would be known and set apart by that fact. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just to reiterate a bit of what Rochelle read, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Here Paul is explaining his process of becoming an apostle because that's been challenged in the city of Galatia. And there's a lot of context to that. Some we've gone over recently, some we'll touch on in the not-so-distant future. But a few themes we've heard about through the past few weeks were this background of of Paul and his story, how he had become a Christian, how he had ended up in Galatia and what some of the themes of what he taught there. We've talked a little bit about the false gospels that he's going to confront confront, uh, in this church, and we're going to get more into those later. We've talked about what it looks like to kind of pervert the gospel. Um, And last week, Nick talked about traditions that could blind us to the gospel in the first place, which is Paul's situation, that he was so zealous, it said, for the traditions of his fathers, that he was unable to see and recognize Christ and apply his work to his life. So this week we're asking, since um, the Galatian church was called back to the gospel that they had abandoned, 
um, or were in, in danger of abandoning. And since Paul broke free from traditions that had blinded him to the gospel, what, what is the path out of false gospels and these kind of entrancing traditions? What is it? Uh, how, do you, how do you get out? How do you change? And the answer is, it's the same as what brings us out of darkness and into light in the scriptures and into relationship with God when we weren't in relationship with God, and that is by grace and only by grace. This little line is the key. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. What, what does that mean? So this evening we'll explore uh, from, this, from this scripture what grace is, what it does, and how to cultivate a ministry of grace. So what it is. Grace in the Bible is the principle by which our hearts are rightly oriented toward God because it is the centerpiece of God's character. It's the, it's the most unique and precious piece of who he is. We first see it in creation. I would go as far as to say we don't just see it in creation. Creation is grace. Uh, if you think about it this way, creation is a gift given before anyone was born. None of us existed. God didn't have to give it to any, any particular person. It was an utter gift that there is a creation at all and that we people get to enjoy it. And then we see it in what you could call being reborn or recreated as humans or what we, we would call salvation or becoming a Christian. We see grace there in that it's given to those who are reconciled to God. We're reading a, um, a letter here, of course, by Paul. Galatians is Paul. But I want, to, I want you to look at what Peter, Jesus' most passionate disciple, said. And if you've been at this church for a while, you know I, I come back to this a lot. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Now, what did, what did this, they search? What did these Old Testament prophets search? Well, the Old Testament, of course. And they inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that, they, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And the answer is, why is it that, or sorry, the question, why is it that angels long to look into the grace the prophets spoke about? And that is because it is this ultimate, unique attribute of God that an angelic being cannot taste. That only a fallen person in need of redemption can taste. So who else can give us creation itself? What other God freely gives of himself to the undeserving, to sinners, out of an abundance of love and compassion and commitment to the healing of their souls? There is no other God who does this. Let's dig a little more into this grace. What is it exactly besides that? It's divine generosity, divine favor. Or, or pleasures given by God freely. 
It is not like an earned wage. God does not owe grace ever. As I said in creation, there was no one there to have done anything to deserve being given the creation itself. It's always, always a gift. It's not something we deserve. It isn't preconditioned by our worthiness at all. And that's why there are people who, who you can look and say, this is an amazing person over here, and they don't receive the grace of God. They don't, they don't have it. They, they're such a good person. That's not how you get grace. Paul would call himself the chief of sinners because he killed the Christians. He realized, I'm the least likely person for God to give his ultimate favor and love to. It doesn't make sense. And this is why Paul describes it as a call and as a, a revelation, something that, that was hidden from you, but then it's revealed to you as something given to him before he was born. And all these ideas make it clear that, that to Paul and all throughout the scripture, grace is alien, meaning it comes from outside of yourself. God chooses to give it before we make any choices at all. God set him apart before he could do anything to deserve this. And God would reveal himself to him, which means that Paul didn't find God. He didn't find the path to God. He didn't check all the the right boxes and conclude God. He didn't check his worldview and get the right worldview and then end up with God. God found Paul, is what this says. And God then called him, which means that Paul's mission, and this is what he's really getting at in this scripture, is to spread the good news of grace. And it wasn't a a choice, a career move. It wasn't self-serving. It was a calling. God said, go. And so that's Paul's big argument. I'm not here to promote Paul. (laughs) I'm here because I have to be. God told me to go. Even his call was a gift from outside of himself. So grace is the free giving of divine favor by God based on nothing a person has done, based on no inward quality that we might consider to make someone worthy like your culture or your beliefs or your achievements. None of that factors in. It's not given because you're nice or faithful or hardworking or dedicated or easy to like, or moral, or smarter than anybody else. And grace is all throughout the Bible, everywhere. It's it's all the way through. It's in creation. The call of Abraham is grace. The deliverance of God's people from Egypt was grace. The law of God is given in light of God's grace. All of God's people's second and third and fourth chances that they got are God's grace. Jesus coming to us at all, even just to live among us, was grace. Jesus dying the death we deserve was absolutely grace. Jesus offering you and I relationship with God is grace. And Jesus' return to establish his good kingdom and restore his creation is grace. The whole Bible, therefore, is drenched in grace. It teaches us about grace. It doesn't give us heroes. It gives us recipients of grace. 
It motivates us by grace. Consider the, uh, that opening of the Ten Commandments that I read as we opened the service. Listen to it under this filter. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Why should you have no other gods before you? Because he's given you your freedom and deliverance. Why and how do you obey even the first commandment? It's by seeing, believing, and remembering God's grace. This is why doing something like if you post the Ten Commandments in public and you wonder why is the nation not listening to it? Here's why. They cannot be loved and followed. It's impossible unless they're received by a heart that knows his grace. When you know he chose you and carried you, then your heart says, I want no other God before you, and you're able to be obedient. Okay, so that's what grace is. Now what grace does. When he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. As we just said, grace is behind our being called by God. So what it does, it it calls us, it gives us a calling. It calls us to God and it calls us out to follow after him. It calls us into a community of God's people, fellow ministers like Paul and Peter. It calls us into the church and the church as a whole is called to make disciples. So grace is what calls us to God and into the church and then sends us out. Okay? Secondly, specifically, it opens our hearts. It punctures through our hardness of heart, our pride, our fear that will never be enough, our heresies, our traditions, our false gospels. That's what happened to Paul on his trip on the road to Damascus. He was zealous, as Nick said last week, for the traditions of his people, but blind to the personal work of Christ until God revealed his grace to him and punctured through. I mean, think about how undeserved this is. Paul is on his way, on his mission to rid the earth of Christians. He is not seeking God. He isn't seeking anything to do with Jesus. And Jesus appears in blazing glory. Did Paul find Jesus? No. Did he reason his way to Jesus? No. Jesus found Paul. And that's why Paul is bothering to confront the Galatian Christians about false and twisted gospels. Because he believes it's worth it, that grace can puncture through any false belief and call them back to Christ. This year, a common refrain on, uh, on social media, and even within this church a couple times, honestly, when a, a trusted leader or a Christian pressed on an issue in which they saw a false gospel developing, people responded, you should just preach the gospel. You shouldn't, you shouldn't get into this. You should just preach the gospel. Don't dig into political ideologies, race, COVID. Please just preach the gospel. But look, anytime a Christian recognizes that something is jeopardizing grace as the cornerstone of the faith, it should be pressed into. Because if a prejudice, a practice, an ideology minimizes or hinders grace, it is gospel work to confront that. But, and this is very important that we remember, If we attack 
ideology with ideology, prejudice with prejudice, practice with counterpractice, we are missing the best tool in the tool belt, which is grace. Because grace alone can change the heart. Just this past week, I was, um, I realized I had to cut a section of floor out in our store, and it was about inch thick plywood. And for some silly reason, I grabbed my chisel and my hammer, and I just got down on the floor and started, you know, just hitting it. And then it dawned on me, I have a saw that plugs in. And what am I doing? And I just dropped in my circular saw and I was like, why, what? wrong with me? It's like that when we don't use grace. We're going after a huge change of heart in somebody's life with like a chisel that can't even get through the first layer. And we have this tool available to us that is powerful and can cut through all of it. And it's grace. But look, even with these concepts in mind, when I'm talking about puncturing through or cutting out, even in that you can hear tones of like pain, right? Pain. Grace does open our heart toward God, but the third thing grace does is it leverages our suffering. Paul in our scripture today tells of his return to Damascus, and of course it was his conversion that drove him to Arabia, um, and that conversion was not easy or joy-filled or all happy for him because it literally blinded him. And his whole world was upended. Think of that. Paul, the scholar, he's a traveling rabbi, is excelling in Judaism, in the traditions of his fathers, and now he cannot read, let alone walk around without somebody holding his hand. And he's about to lose all of his community. Think about it. This is not an easy journey for Paul. He doesn't tend to complain about this, but think about it. Everything he lost. Makes me think of Rosaria Butterfield's story. I don't know if you've read the book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. But for for Rosaria Butterfield, she was an English professor, professor, professor of queer theory at Syracuse. For her to be confronted with the God of the scriptures was not helpful. God was like an uninvited intruder, like undeniable, compelling, but uninvited and very disruptive. And to bow a knee for her to the gospel of grace was to lose just about everything. She lost her position as a professor. She lost her community, her longtime partner. It was not without pain to receive grace. Because if God is the giver of all creation and the only one who can draw us near, then he's the only one worthy of worship. And that has great implications. So grace is the favor and love of the God of the universe. But sometimes, as C.S. Lewis has said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. And in the case of Paul, pain was clearly purposeful and even a byproduct of encountering the risen Christ. You know, when I cut my floor out, I I got pretty far with that circular saw. But if you ever use a circular saw, you can't make a straight cut at at the end of something unless you can go through it. 
So the end parts of this cut, I had to go back to my hammer and chisel and, ooh, I mean, chunks of floor ripping out, right, to get there. There's, there's a sense where grace is like the tool that really can, can puncture through the heart, but grace also is going to get in there and do some detail work. And it's not always easy or pain-free, but it's worth it. So grace opens our heart. It may come with pain, and it's not a one-time event. It has to sink down. Grace is persistent. And it's learned by constant practice. So Paul, in our scripture this evening, says he went away to Arabia. And most, most scholars believe he was there for years. And he wasn't there to preach the gospel. It wasn't where his ministry began. Many, many and most believe that Arabia is where he combed the Old Testament and studied for years looking for Christ, trying to make sense of what had just happened in his life. Many believe it was there that he put the pieces together of what we would one day call like the book of Romans, where he works out, here is the gospel, and here is how the scriptures have pointed to it all along. But it took years. And in this time, no doubt he grew not only in his knowledge of grace, but in his experience of grace. He undoubtedly, from the things that you read about him later, learned what it was like to apply grace to himself, and then, by so doing, learn how to apply it to the lives of others. And later he would instruct an apprentice, Timothy. I'm going to read you a little bit of a longer portion of his letter to Timothy. And just imagine that you're a young leader hearing this now. Just all of it. Just kind of just try, try this on for size. He says, now the spirit expressly says, in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This sounds like insane stuff, right? Like, what did they do? Well, here he tells us. These demonic liars forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thankfulness by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. We know from the scriptures that, that Paul had to confront people who they were worried about eating food that had been sacrificed to idols because maybe it was a little like impure and maybe they weren't going to quite be righteous. The demonic liars taught that kind of stuff. That's not that crazy. But Paul is saying that's the stuff that undermines grace. And so it matters. Then Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good conscience, or sorry, of good doctrine that you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Here's a key sentence. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, Paul says. When he says that, he's saying, listen to me right now. Have you ever heard Matt Chandler preach? Listen to me. Okay, that's one of those moments. He's trying to say, pay attention right now. For to this end, we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. There's Paul's cornerstone. How do we reject doctrines, you have your hope set on the Savior. 
That's grace. He's teaching us to land in grace. Hoping God's grace isn't a one-time thing you believe, you have to train yourself in it. He tells him, train yourself in that. You'll need years, you'll need a lifetime, you'll need habits, you'll need a church, you'll need community, you'll need commitment, you'll need discipline. Train yourself in it. And then, grace motivates us to give more grace. The final thing I want to tell you all, how to cultivate a ministry of grace. If all this is true, if you have to train yourself in grace, it has to sink down. If that's what can puncture through into your heart, if it's the divine generosity of God that cannot be earned and cannot be deserved, then how do we cultivate a ministry of grace? How do we use grace? How do we take grace out into our world? See it make a difference. See, the worst of Christian heresies diminish God's grace. In Galatians, Paul is going after the Judaizers who taught that grace wasn't enough. You had to be circumcised and follow the Jewish calendar. Elsewhere, he'll go after those who want to trample God's grace by using it as a license to displease God and ignore his holy standard, saying things like, doesn't our sin cause God to give more grace? And therefore, how could it be wrong to sin if it just makes grace more abundant? Paul goes after that in Romans 6. He says, no, you don't mess with grace. Don't take advantage of grace. Don't minimize grace. So we need to cultivate a life of ministry that cherishes God's grace and preaches God's grace and loves God because of his grace. And I want to show you two ways we miss this ministry and then how to do it. Two ways we miss it and how to do it. The first or the two ways, the log in the eye and what I'm going to call the tragic reversal. So the log in the eye, we know this well because Jesus gave it to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's especially about spiritual pride and our blindness to it. So with all this talk of heresies, false gospels, dead traditions, we can easily slip into this blunder, and it's unfortunate. See, before we dare become false gospel police or heresy police or tradition police, we'd better do some major self-examination. This very year, I noticed that, you know, all you got to do is, again, be on social media or pay attention to your friends, people who were, who were fighting, accusing each other of things. And whenever you're a third party to that and you're not as emotionally involved, sometimes you can kind of look at it and go, you're fighting ideology with ideology. You're fighting, you're the same. You, you have the same conviction. You're both, you know, committed to this and that's why you're fighting with each other. Like, my favorite's individualism, you know, because it's every individualist is going to fight because they're individualists. Like, it's my way. Of, yeah, you're going to fight. What do you expect? But it's easy to see when you're outside of it, this, this glaring hypocrisy, and it, it can be kind of ridiculous when you really look at it and you wonder, why don't these arguments work? And that's why our great shepherd of the sheep, God in the flesh, in his greatest teaching to us on Matthew 5 said this, Listen to this in light of our year, right? Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your, out of your eye, and you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. A ministry of the gospel of grace isn't without critique of other principles. Paul, of course, in Galatians is criticizing the Judaizers. He's saying you're undermining the gospel. 
False gospels need to be recognized and rejected. Trampling the gospel needs to be recognized and repented of, but you cannot go about doing any of this without humility. It must be delivered by those who can clearly see. And what that means to be able to see what Jesus was saying is not just see the other person's problem. You need to be able to clearly see and name and articulate your temptations, previous, current, your idols, previous, current, and potential, your false gospels and the allure that they have unto you and the traditions that threaten to entangle you. You must be able to, or you will have no effectiveness carrying the gospel of grace out. And we all have these things. We all have every single one of these things. And if you can't see yours, your gospel ministry will be stunted, awkward, and ridiculous. And that's the image that Jesus gave. I brought a prop for this, okay? Look, it's been a while since I brought a prop. So we're doing this, all right? So Morgan says to me, she goes, my eye itches. Um, I think there's something in my eye, right? And I come up and I go, no, there's totally, there's totally something in your eye. Hold on. Oh my gosh, there's a speck in your eye, Morgan. I'm going to help. Oh, are you okay? Okay, yeah, I actually didn't mean to hit you there. But uh, I'm just like, I, I'm going to get that out of there. Uh, hold on. Okay, I'm going to dig. And, and I bump you in the head a million times. Wasn't that the most ridiculous? Why did I pull this piece of wood out? I'm still, I, I'm surprised I even did this. Why was that the weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? Why, Morgan, why is that the weirdest thing you've ever experienced in church? Getting hit in the head by a two by 10. Why is that so ridiculous? That is the exact illustration Jesus is giving. He's trying to bring about the ridiculousness of pointing out other people's issues when you are full of them. It's so weird and confusing and ineffective. And he says, you must be able to see the log in your eye and go, I have, a, I have big issues. I am wrong. I have idols. I have sins. And, and, tell, and be able to articulate that clearly. When you are there, you'll be able to see and help other people. And, that, and it's common. Okay, the log in the eye. The second is the tragic reversal. And this one is also so common. And it usually comes from those of us who sincerely want to see people come to trust in God's grace, but it misunderstands the power and the place of grace in the process. Here, here's a version of what it could look like. Keep God's commandments and he will love you. To some folks in church, and we know these folks, that sounds exactly right. Keep his commandments and he'll give you something good in return. Keep his commandments and you'll do well financially. Keep his commandments and you'll probably get promoted at work. Keep his commandments and he'll take care of you. Something like that. If that, if that sounds exactly right to you, you may not know the gospel. To others, though, you're sitting out here and you're like, that sounds wrong. That sounds wrong. But, so many times, and I have definitely caught myself operating by this principle by default. And here's, here's what to look for. 
because this comes so naturally to us. When you engage with people outside of the faith or in the culture, do you begin with criticism? Do you open with a condemnation of sin? Do you start with trying to prove that Christianity is better, like the apologetics mode, or more accurate? Do you try to prove this is the best way to live, this is the right way to believe, If you do, that's the tragic reversal. You're missing the power that can change the heart. The words of Jesus that describe it so succinctly are these. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me. What causes us to love him? Seeing his gracious character toward us, his heart toward us. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he says it in this way. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And you see it in all of the letters to the churches. Paul or a disciple like Peter, they may have a heresy to confront, like Paul does here in Galatians. But first, they're going to work out the meaning of the gospel, the depths of God's grace, the incredible gift that God has given them. You could think of the beginning of Ephesians, in which Paul you know, he blesses the Lord and he talks about how we were predestined in him before the foundation of the world and adopted into his family and blessed. And he goes on and on. And then he comes in, in chapter three, the end of chapter three, if you've read this much of Ephesians, he, he gives kind of a benediction and says, now to him who's able to do more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, not that we are working within us, it's at work within us, To him be glory in the church, in Christ throughout all generations. And then in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, you're well over halfway done. He said, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called in all humility. You see, a ministry of God's grace anchors in the power of grace that can change our hearts and teaches us to love God. And then we love God and therefore keep his commandments. Do you love God? Do you want to please God? Do you see how much grace he's given to you? Do you feel gratitude and joy in his presence? Do you desire to honor him with your life? A ministry of grace overflows from a heart that knows grace. Do you know it? Do you receive it from God? Do you feel it? Do you experience it? It's there for the taking. It is offered by God at all times. It's his favorite thing to give. And it's free. He's generous and he's kind. Some people ask, how do I know if God wants to give me grace? And one of my favorite answers is one that's been used for for centuries. If you're asking that question, He's knocking. If you have any interest in him, he's right there. Listen. Receive it. Try trusting it. What if it's true? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be people who see your grace. I pray that we would be a church that loves you for your grace. I pray that when we display you to the world, it would be with such deep humility and thankfulness for your mercy that when we take any form of stand within our community or anywhere, that it would always be with the deepest of humility 
that we would never think too highly of ourselves, but that we would think of ourselves with sober judgment. And that we would think of you in the highest way, with all praise and honor, magnifying your great mercy and that alone. I pray that we would be struck by the amount of grace you've given us, even the fact that we wake up in the morning. Even in a time like this of difficulty and death, none of us deserves life at all. Help us to be struck by the grace of every single breath, of every day, of every beautiful sunset, of every tree, every cactus, every friendship embedded in our souls. Give us gratitude and help us to have a ministry of grace. In Jesus' name.